1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we are, we are looking at today, we're starting off on verse 12, but I'm going to just do a little slight recap of what we talked about last week. And my brain was foggy last week. It was the first week back from being out for three weeks, so it was enjoyable and fun to be able to preach. But I told my wife, she asked me, she's like, How, how'd you do? And I said, it was all right. It's just, you, have, you know how you have like, you know what you want to say, but you don't know what you want to say, and you have words floating around, and I couldn't grab the words out of the, the air the, the way that I wanted to. But God's word is awesome, goes out, it hits the way that it needs to hit. But basically just a, a slight little recap of, of what this chapter's hitting on is basically Paul addressing and talking um, to individuals of the, the Church of Corinth that were possibly struggling with this doctrine of the resurrection of Christ and this belief that Jesus physically rose from the grave, which Paul was wanting to truly address because this is a foundational element to the Christian faith. And he wanted to remind them of the gospel that he preached and taught to them in the beginning. He also knows that there's a lot of things going on externally outside of the church with philosophers and, and agnostics and mystics and things like that, different teachings that were going on that were influencing the mindsets of people of the church. And that there were possibly even people in the church, more than likely, that weren't Christian. We're reminded in 2 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 3, where Paul says that we're called to test ourselves in the faith, right? Unless we were to fail in that test. Do we have Jesus Christ in us? Are we operating as such in, in a manner of, of, of worthiness when it comes to the Holy Spirit? Um, are we understanding of, of the gospel and the doctrine, the foundation of the church, that being Christ crucified? Do we, do we understand all of these elements and do we live as such as well? And Paul was really wanting to hit home with this. But one of the things that I wanted to hit on, because I love to use scripture to, to connect scripture, and I didn't do it too much last week, once again, because of some brain fog, but I am going to do it today. So be prepared. You guys are going to be flipping through your Bibles a little bit. Is when we look and read in 1 Corinthians 15, and we see this concern and all these different things going on when it comes to the doctrines that's being talked about and things like that. I want you guys to go to your Bible, open up uh, Acts chapter 17 in your Bibles right now. Let's have you guys go backwards, because this is, this is going to kind of lay out a little bit of this doctrine that Paul is really trying to preach and teach about that's bringing out kind of a sense of, I don't want to say confusion, but something that he's really trying to remind and emphasize to this church in Corinth. And I sent out a message to a bunch of pastors in our area just for words of encouragement this past week. Um, I had gotten word from a, a few friends of mine, a few brothers in the faith that go to different churches around here. And we check in with each other, we reach out, and you know, I ask about their pastors. How are their pastors doing? And all of them said that their pastors are burdened and down. And I said, may I ask why? And they said, just that the times that we're in, people's mindsets, the church, the distractions, the deception, all these things, they, they've kind of worked their way into the church. And I'm like, kind of worked their way. Oh, they're in the church. And I understand that as well as a pastor. And you guys have heard me be pretty open and adamant about that as well. But I wanted to make sure that I, I sent this reminder out to these pastors of just encouragement of the hope and the call that they have on their lives and what they're supposed to do as pastors and just 
preaching and teaching God's word, shepherding people to the grave. I like to say that to people. Like that is our job. Is that we're we're called to just literally shepherd you guys to the grave. Fall in love with Christ more and more. Become more like Christ more and more. Trying to to help through through a body of believers and operating in the Holy Spirit through gifting, coming together on Sundays in this gathering for encouragement, raising you guys up to a level of maturity. So growing together as that body. And these pastors are burdened because people are just being knocked back and forth. All these different things going on. These things are just that are pulling their eyes off of Jesus Christ. So unable to just kind of reach out to them and send them a message. It was awesome to get some of the feedback and stuff. But once again, when we read through these, these teachings and, and through God's word, it's just, I, I, I told my wife, I said, it's just astonishing to me that we don't see even how this was written thousands of years ago. These are the same things that were going on when Paul was doing his thing and planting churches and raising churches up. People just get distracted. They get deceived. They have all these other goofy things going on around them, and it pulls their attention away from where it needs to be, and that is Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 17, we're going to start off here at verse 16. Acts chapter 17, we're going to start off here at verse 16. And this is a part, this is a component where Paul is basically speaking to a group of people. And some of you guys may know people like this. Hopefully, none of you guys are like this. Where these are just people that just like to talk about the newest, the latest, and the greatest thing. The, the, the story of stories of the week. These are your news watchers, your social media watchers, your, your people that are just dabbling and diving in everything that's going on out there talking over coffee, talking over whatever. They're just wanting to chit-chat and this truth, that truth. We live in a time right now where everyone gets to kind of establish their own truth and we've kind of worked our way um, away from God's truth. But Paul starts off here in Athens. He said, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who had happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? He remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Once again, this is nothing new. Trust me. The places I go, the people I sit with, we like to chit-chat about all the newest trends and ideas and things going on around us. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So they have these, these mindsets and these protocols and maybe the spirituality about them. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. My wife and I, we teach and talk about this a lot with individuals, that there's a power that we can kind of bring along behind the things that we idol and the things that we worship. 
Now, is there an actual power in the, in the actual thing itself? No, there is not. But we ourselves, in our, in our devotion, in, in this being the object of our affection, we can muster up some stuff that comes up alongside that. So we try to tell you guys to be mindful of the things that you watch, mindful of the things that you listen to, mindful of the things that you put on high and see as a sense of idolship. Because idolship is a struggle with many people today, especially in our nation. Verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as he's needed as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations and that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And closing out here in verse 29, I'll continue. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set up a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So when you look at this, and we, we continue on, if you look even into verse or chapter 18, it will even give us context that Paul is then in Corinth. So, this should give you guys a little bit of a layout of the things that Paul is discussing and talking about here in the church of Corinth. The things that he's wanting to remind the church about when it comes to the different ideas or the different things that they are discussing and the things he's wanting to refute. And when we go back to last week, one of the things that I didn't emphasize or talk about, but I do want to bring up to you is, is how many of you guys have heard this term blind faith? That we as Christians are called to, in a sense, just have this blind faith about Jesus. When we go back and look at what Paul is even speaking about here in chapter 15, we can even look at Luke's gospel as well. You know, as Christians, we're not called to, in a sense, have blind faith. That there is actually historical accounts for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The capstone, if you will, of our Christian faith. And when Paul is listing here throughout the, the first part of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, you guys look, he says, starting here at, at verse 3, just a, a little bit of a recap from last week. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. So when we read through this, was this just something that happened and someone just went and reported and said, well, Jesus' body's not in the tomb anymore. The assumption has to be made what he said and promised back in Matthew 16, verse 21, that he's going to raise, be raised from the dead on the third day, that these things took place. Are, were we called to just go around and say that, or was there actual eyewitness accounts of Jesus physically being resurrected from the dead? 
So once again, this is the mindset that he's wanting to say here is we, we're not called as Christians to just have this blind faith. We actually can say through God's word that there's historical account. But when Paul even sits here and says in verse 8, and at last of all, he appeared to me also to one abnormally born. Some of your Bibles may say untimely. We're reminded here that Paul was not an individual that was with Christ during his earthly ministry pre-resurrection. He wasn't, he didn't have that. Jesus and, and, and him, their relationship or, or the revelation that Christ gave him in his teaching was post-resurrection. But Paul, in a sense, is kind of like a prototype of our faith in Christ to Jesus Christ, right? Think about it. How many of you knew Jesus Christ or saw Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry? I didn't. I wasn't alive back then. But many of us, all of us today, our relationship with Jesus Christ, our spiritual resurrection, our brand new life that we have, is post-resurrection. This is the same faith that Paul himself had as well. So when we read through, we, we read through the epistles, we read through the New Testament, we hear all these, these, these teachings that Paul gives us, it's a great reminder for us through Paul's life being someone that persecuted the church. And when he's speaking about being abnormally born, this, this is a way of him expressing not a physical birth, but his supernatural being born again birth. Abnormally born, right? We are, as Christians are called to be born again in Jesus Christ. This to the world would seem abnormal, Right? When Jesus is, is, is speaking to the, the religious teacher and he says you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, what does the religious teacher say? What does he ask him? How can a man pass back through the mother's womb after he's full grown, right? And Jesus looks at him and that's not what I mean. There's a supernatural birth, a supernatural um, being born again spiritually through Christ that has to take place. So, that was, that was my extended recap of last week. But now we are going to go into the, the resurrection of the dead, as it's noted here in my, my Bible. But I want to read to you guys a phrase here from Henry Morris. How many of you guys are familiar with who he is? Henry Morris is seen as the father of modern creation science. Basically, this is an individual that has utilized science and his Christian faith to help prove the stories of the Bible in the Old Testament, starting from the very jump in Genesis. And he, he has put together all these scientific, um, um, I guess, facts and scientific studies to show and to prove that the events of the Old Testament are true and took place. Now, us as Christians, once again, we're called to believe, because it's in God's Word, that these events have taken place and they happen. But... It is pretty cool that this individual, Henry Morris, has kind of seen it as, or he's, he's passed, but his life was devoted to wanting to try to just compile and take science to promote the kingdom of God. So it's pretty neat and interesting to, to read his story, but a quote here that he says here is, The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. And if it did take place that Christ is God, the Christian faith is absolute truth. Like, guys, the reason why, when I was joking last week about not wanting to move ahead and get too far into this, and I'm, I'm really trying to pace myself and how much we, because I could talk to you guys about this for hours, because this is the hope that we have as Christians. Like, I can't stress this enough. So many of you are burdened right now. Am I right? 
Like so many of you have experienced stress and pain beyond all get out, right? Loss, disease. And th this isn't my version of some kind of feel-good sermon to you guys, but what I want you guys to emphasize, and it's even a reminder of what these songs talk about, is that you have a promise from God. You have a hope in Jesus Christ that through the blood of Christ, through his death on the cross, you've been justified. You've been saved. And that there will be a day that we all experience this, this physical death, if you will. But Paul, I love what he does. He refers it to just merely sleep. And as we're going to unpack and read some passages today, some beautiful promises that God gives us through his word. And I just really want you guys to remind yourselves of this daily. Not just on Sunday when you're able to drag your butts into church, but literally daily. And hopefully the messages and, and, and the words as we're going through this chapter, they, they stick to your heart. They stick to your brain. And, and you remind yourself of this stuff, especially as you go through whatever it is you're going through, either right now or in the future or whatever. Regardless, as I said last week, of how rocky the flight may seem, you know that that plane's going to land. You know it's going to land. And you know it's going to land safely. Amen? So... We're going we're gonna to go into this real quick. I'm going to go ahead and just go back to Romans 4.25 because I've had people ask me in the past, five years as a pastor, I've actually had people that have come from different backgrounds, people that have come into the church that, that weren't saved. They, they ask me the question, they say, why does the resurrection matter? Like, I can believe all the other stuff. And this is even what Paul's dealing with here with the, the Greeks and stuff. Like, they have all these teachings and all these philosophies but when you start talking about a person being rose from the dead, that to people could be some pretty hard teaching. So in Romans 4.25, this says, Paul is saying here, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So as we spoke about last week, what I, what I said to you guys was, was that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this was proof that Jesus was God. Amen? This was proof. Truly man, truly God. But also in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was another component that was there. And that component was, was that the death that Jesus suffered willingly was also an acceptable sacrifice to God. That's why he was rose from the dead. So when we look at Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. If there is no resurrection, Christianity is a farce. If there is no resurrection, all we have, church, right now that we're talking and speaking about is a dead Jesus. That's all we're talking about. That's not Christianity. The reason Jesus rose from the dead was not only because he was God, but it was also because the sacrifice that he bore, him being that sacrifice, was an acceptable one to God. It was the vindication, the justification of the life, the suffering, and the death that Jesus experienced. And we have to be willing to kind of link this stuff up together. We have to be willing to see that. So Paul starts off here in verse 12. He's going to just kind of go through here. And he's giving people that he's talking to pretty much this, 
debate or this argument or this, this form of, um, of, I guess, logic that he's wanting to lay out. It's almost like a defense, if you will. But he's, he's kind of throwing these, these hypotheticals at them. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So once again, as I just said, no Jesus resurrection, there's no Christianity. There's no resurrection for you and I. We're going to get into that more as well, because the resurrection of Christ also signifies what we are to experience when Jesus comes back. And it's, it's once again, it's beautiful news. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So everything that I've preached and have taught in the last five years is useless if Jesus Christ has not been raised. If there has been no resurrection, your guys' faith is useless. We shouldn't be here anymore. There's no Christianity. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. It's big. If I preached you the gospel and I preached sin doctrine, and I say, Chris, Brenda, Jesus died for your sins, but I don't explain to you the resurrection component of that gospel message, and that resurrection component doesn't take place. Let's say I sit there and go, well, we can believe that, that Jesus died for us, but it might be a little too far-fetched to believe that he actually physically rose from the grave. We're still dead in our sins and transgressions. There is no salvation through Jesus Christ if there's no resurrection. We have to understand this and get this. And you guys might, some of you are even sitting here and I know, and you guys have probably heard this since you were a little kid. But trust me, there are people out there that struggle with this doctrine that call themselves Christians. And when I read what Paul is experiencing and who he is talking to here, or people that have been swayed away, people that started off in the spirit of things and they're now kind of trying to finish things up. Well, I grew up and I believed that Jesus was the only way to God the Father, but now through the things that I've read and experienced and friends that I've met in college or whatever the case may be, I really think and believe that there's other ways to get to God. Or as we read in 2 John, we're told that there's a lot of deceivers out there. Well, it isn't really people speaking necessarily that there is no Jesus. It's just that they're presenting other Jesuses and they're presenting other Gospels. And this was an issue that Paul was encountering, and this is an issue I believe that the church today is dealing with as well. Kind of a basis to the message that I had for the pastors today, or this last week as well, just to try to encourage them. So I'm going to go here, for if the dead is not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Paul is not sitting here and he's not saying death. He's wanting to remind Christians that it's merely the sense of sleep that we're in because there will be a day that we will physically resurrect when Christ comes back. But he does want to say, you know what? If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. If there is no Christianity... 
there's no salvation. We're still dead in our sins and transgressions. And if we're still dead in our sins and transgressions, those who lived a life devoted to Christ, those apostles, those followers of Christ that experienced horrible deaths at the name of Jesus, they're lost. They're merely gone. I read a story to this last week. There's this ritual that African Muslims like to do at funerals. It's kind of an interesting thing. They will go into a funeral home and their deceased loved one is in this casket. And they will take members of the family and they will stand around the casket. And they do this awkward thing where they literally just stand there and stare and say nothing. They're not even allowed to cry. If they start to cry, they're actually removed from the circle, but they stand there and they're just called to stare at the body. Then all of a sudden, the person that's doing the service starts to hand out these mints, right? Give them these just mints, all of them. And then at, at, the, at the order of the person doing the service, they're told to put the mint in their mouth. And they stand there while the mint is in their mouth, they're called to reflect back on the life and the memories that they have of this deceased loved one. But then when the mint is dissolved and it's gone, they're called to step away from the casket and sit down. The mint is a representation of the life that they live. But eventually life just dissolves away and there's nothing. And I read that and I'm thinking, what a sorry, sad way to live. Like that there's nothing. And once again, I hit on this a little bit last week in regards to death and, and all that. I, I, I can't stress enough, death is a very hard thing to reconcile when you don't know Jesus Christ. Any of you that have experienced loss, either as a Christian or before you became a Christian, if you're sitting in here and you're not a Christian, whatever, it is a, uh, just this, there's no reconciliation of someone that you've loved that has died. And I've been at funerals. I've, I've officiated so many funerals in five years as a pastor where you see this complete look of just lost and pain and just complete, what am I going to do? This person's gone. This person's no longer here. And I've always said to people, even at funerals, that nothing puts perspective on life in a way than death does. You don't think about your own existence any other way more fiercely, more intimately than when you lose someone that you're close to. Because you're reminded of an important truth that God tells us in his word. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, this is the place that we're all going to be one day. That as me as a pastor... A house of mourning is more valuable than a house of feast because I know when I'm sitting with people in a room that has lost someone that they love, they're in a desperation mode where their hearts may be open. You know, I had all these theories and these thoughts, Pastor Josh, about life and the beauty of life and how we're just supposed to go out and you only live once, right? So you got to live it up now and just live fast, live hard and all that stuff. And then when they lose someone, or they themselves become sick and they're at the end of their life. All of those thoughts and all of those theories are laid out in front of them. And it's literally this what now moment. It's desperation. It's an inability to reconcile. So when you preach a message and speak a message about hope in a time where hope feels lost, 
When you let them know that there will be a time where every tear will be wiped away, that even though you are physically in the ground, that there is the King of Kings will come back and you will rise with him in glory, that death is merely just sleep for you as the Christian, that death is merely just sleep for, for a loved one or a family member, that they too believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Oh my gosh, like it doesn't mean that you as Christians don't mourn. It doesn't mean that you as Christians don't feel sad. But when you have hope as your foundation in the midst of that hardship, when you have hope as your foundation in the midst of craziness going on in the world, deception, deceit, family members that are bugging you to no end, all these byproducts of sin in a fallen world, greediness, selfishness, when you have hope as your foundation as a Christian, when you have Jesus Christ in your life, the peace of him running through your veins, oh my gosh, people are going to look at you and think you're crazy. This is a message that we're called to go out and speak. So this is, once again, in, in regards to life as a Christian, life as a child of God, these are messages that, this is the message that we're called to, to not just keep in-house as a church, we're called to go out and spread this message amongst the nations. The harvest field is plenty, right? But the workers are few. We live in a time right now where we see that, that the, the, the road to heaven, we're told in God's word, is narrow. The gate is narrow. And we're told in God's word that the road is wide and broad to hell. But today we seem to live in a time where there's so many different ways to heaven that that the road is wide and the gate is wide so anyone and everyone can get in there. So people are living in a way and in such a way where they're being deceived and going to their grave as such. Why do you think Paul wants to correct these churches? Why do you think Paul writes these letters? Why do you think I as a pastor am called to teach you guys this stuff? Because you so very easily could be deceived as well. My gosh, I, I know all the different things that you guys have flooding in your brains and in your ears and all the different... We had YouTube TV for two weeks and we're watching it for like football and the commercials and all the craziness. I look at my wife, I go, would it be wrong to like tell the church to cancel their cable subscription? Because, oh my gosh, like this stuff is nuts. Like all the different things out there. It, 200 and something channels for basic cable point? Like what? Like why do you need all those channels? Like... <laughs> Ah, oh, like it, it just, it's, it's hard. It is. Cell phones, all, I never thought, like, you're a young dude back there, like, you know, Doss, like, I was you once, and I'd sit there and I'd hear a pastor talk, and I'm like, that dude's like old and fuddy, and he's, <laughs> my phone's not evil, like, TV's not evil, music's not, dude, it's evil, it's evil. like, especially in your guys' generation, like, it's evil, and I, I just, I sit there and I go, we need Christ now more than ever. We need our focus on him now more than ever, especially in this nation, especially in this nation. Like people going out there and just speaking and living this news and this hope. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, First fruits here is an amazing thing because, and I, I preached about this last Easter. I'm going to go back to this. You guys do not need to because I want to give you guys some context of what Paul is using here as an example. Leviticus 23:10. Okay, 
Paul is saying this for a purpose and a reason. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In Leviticus 23, I'll start off in verse 9 here. The offering of the first fruits. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land, I am going to give you and reap its harvest. Bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain that you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. So, this was a, 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 a feast, an event that would take place after the week of Passover, the first day after Passover, the first Sabbath day. There was this harvest of barley sheaves. And these individuals were called to take the finest and the first of this barley harvest. They were called to take these sheaves and wave them as a way to show the Lord that he is provider and that he is deserving and worthy of the greatest and the best that they have. When this event took place in regards to the Lord's day, it took place on Resurrection Sunday. So when Jesus Christ himself rose from the grave, there were priests out there waving these barley sheaves as a, as a way of showing the first fruits of this harvest. Jesus Christ himself is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first fruits of those who have identified with him. He is the first fruits of those who believe in him as Lord and Savior. He is the one that is the sacrifice that has been offered up to God the Father, the acceptable sacrifice, why he was raised, that God saw and knew, and that we now who are identified with him, as we're told in his word, adopted into sonship with God, we too are accepted with him. So he is that first fruit. He is the representation of the rest of the harvest, which is the church, the bride. He is the one that God sees and goes, it's all good. These individuals are back in right standing. with. They are my children. I'm the creator of all. These are the ones that are going to spend eternity with me. These are the ones who are forgiven. This is the gospel message. This is why theology matters in church. A lot of people don't understand this stuff. They, don't, they, they hear the message, Betty, Jesus died for your sins. That's it. They don't know or hear about resurrection. They're not told that, Betty, there will be a day where you rise again with Jesus Christ amongst the saints, that you will literally spend eternity with him and the new earth. There'll be no pain. There'll be no death. There'll be no tears. Sin is gone. Death has been defeated. Like, you'll be, there you go. People, like, we need to teach this to people. So he goes on to sit here and say, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as, Adam, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You guys do not have to turn with me, but if you want, you can. Romans 5. I actually have notes today, and notes are very uncommon for me because there's just so much in here that I wanted to make sure that I covered with you guys. Romans 5, 12 through 21. This is Paul, once again, kind of laying out this theology for us regarding about those of Adam and those of Christ. Jesus was seen as the second what? Second Adam. Okay, so through Adam, we, have all, we are all descendants of Adam, through flesh. Through Christ, 
there's this supernatural element that's there, this supernatural and spiritual identity that is there. So in verse 12, chapter 5 of Romans, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in all, the, all this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. How do you know something is bad, church, if you don't have something that sits there and says that it's bad? That is what Paul is trying to say in this message, okay? There, there's these decrees and stuff that God's putting down that, Rick, you can't go out and stab somebody, okay? You can't claim ignorance on that one. But through Christ and even through, through spiritual, this, this sense of the laws even being written on our hearts, we know now in existence as well that certain things are bad and that certain things are wrong. In verse 13, he says, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So we're the enemy, we're the devil sitting there going, ha ha, sin is intertwined through all of creation. The way that God sees it is, is ha ha, through the blood of Jesus Christ, this is just a harvest field of those of many that now that can be justified. Satan, you think you're building up an army of sinful beings? Guess what? I'm building up an army of righteous individuals who believe in the blood of Jesus Christ, who believe in the person, the works of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's this, this dupe to the devil here. And when he's sitting here, and he, he once again reminds us of the, the pattern of the one to come. He's speaking about Jesus Christ. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. Now I want to stop there because there is a doctrine that is preached from this passage. How many of you are familiar with the doctrine of universal, universalism? This is usually used where people will sit there and there's a belief that people will take this and go, well that means that Jesus Christ died for everyone and there really doesn't have to be any kind of profession of faith. And it's a very popular belief with people. They call themselves Christian. The Bible just sits here and says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. That's not what Paul's saying. Do I believe that there is a group or an existence or people that people, if, if choosing the free gift of salvation can be saved anyone? Of course. I, I, I believe that. Do I believe that everyone will? I do not. We know in the famous passage of John 3.16 that there will be those who are perishing. There's going to be people that reject this message of salvation. So I just wanted to stop and point that out because we've had people ask us about this. 
For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law has brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. So to summarize here, we are all descendants of Adam. This is where in theology of things, the virgin birth is imperative to understand. Okay? This is why in understanding the life that Jesus Christ lived as being the acceptable sacrifice for us is imperative. Jesus Christ, God, willfully came to earth, left the right side, the right hand of the throne to come to earth. Okay? We know this and we see this. He experienced the components and the elements that have come from sinful nature and sinful being. He did not sin himself. We know this. We read this through his word. But he even developed in Mary in a fashion and a way to where he developed in a manner and a way that we as people develop in the womb. He experienced what physical birth through flesh experiences, but he was not created in a manner and a way that would place him under that federal headship of Adam. He couldn't be. He couldn't be created in a flesh and blood manner because that would have put him under the headship and the descendant of Adam. So God supernaturally brought him down conceived him in the womb of Mary. This is why the virgin birth is imperative to understand. So people sit there and they'll wonder, they'll go, why, why, did, why didn't he just... Everything else he experienced in a fleshly manner. The development in the womb, the birth, living a life in the flesh, right? He became sin to conquer sin. We know that. But there's a headship component there that he could not fall under. He fell under the federal headship of God spiritual, supernatural. But he could not be conceived in a manner in a way that you and I were all conceived. That is why the virgin birth is important to understand. This is why theology matters in understanding this stuff. I'll go back to 20 here. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. So he's speaking about Adam and he's speaking about Christ. For as in Adam, all die. All of us die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. So you have the world, Adam, those who choose Christ will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, will be the first to rise. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. He's speaking about once again, the resurrection of us, not just the resurrection of Jesus. Now, when you guys are baptized, there's a signification to that as well. Okay, it's not just speaking about you being dipped down and coming up and being made brand new and walking in newness of life of just here on the, in the flesh before you die. This is also speaking about your newness of life, walking with Christ in eternity as well. We're told that Christ gives us abundant life. Not abundance in life. People confuse that. A lot of people that like to preach this, this word that says, well, God's going to give you a life full of abundance and nice 
pretty things and all that. No, when he's speaking about abundant life, he's speaking about eternity, life extended throughout forever. That is what he means by abundant life. He goes on, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So, in looking at that, I'm going to go, and once again, you guys do not have to go. I'm going to read these passages because I want to make sure that you guys understand this. Because when he says in 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. When he's speaking about end here, he's speaking about basically making null and void, worthless, okay? These things are basically being moved off the stage. All these authorities, these powers and all that, he's speaking about basically the demonic, the sinful, these angelic spiritual authorities and powers, so I'm going to go back to Romans 8.38, and I'll make sure that when I post this message, I will put these passages for you guys to use to reflect on as well. Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm going to jump forward here to Ephesians. I just want you guys to have an understanding of what he's speaking about when he's talking about these powers and authorities and stuff like that. In Ephesians 1, 21, he says, Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. Ephesians 6, 12, which we all know pretty well. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then I will go to one more here. Colossians 2.10. He says... And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So when we are reading back through here in 1 Corinthians 15, what he is saying to us about where Jesus is literally going to hand over the kingdom after all these things end, after all these things have been defeated, he is going to bring these things, the defeat of these authorities, these powers and all that. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. When it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us, eat, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts, corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, 
and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Some passages that I just want to go over real quick in regards to 26 here out of 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So I'm going to go to Revelation 21, which you guys, I'm sure, are familiar with this passage as well. And once again, in speaking about the hope that we have as Christians, the new heaven and the new earth. I'll just start off here with Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Then there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic, arts, and idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And then in regards to 1528, 1 Corinthians, closing out with this, guys. Like I said, I know I'm bouncing around a lot. Just wanted to make sure that I, I package this up well for you guys. Is this like sticking? Is this making sense for you guys of what's being discussed? You guys, are you confused? Everyone's quiet. I just, I just want you guys truly to just, I don't know. I want you guys to read through this chapter. Hopefully you guys did. And I want you guys to just come to this place of understanding, reminding yourself of just this beautiful news. So Romans 11.36 in reference to 1 Corinthians 15.28. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I love this passage because once again, we are reminded in scripture that we are created by God, that God doesn't owe us anything, right? We're created from him and through him and for him are all things as well. So when we see through him, everything that we experience, everything that we see, everything that we know is bound together through God. It is connected by God in some way, shape, or form. It is ordained and takes place because God wills it to be. And for him are all things. Everything is done for the glory of God. It is all working towards something in regards to glorifying God. Especially for us as Christians, we speak and, and we read about that. Everything needs to be done to glorify God. But everything that we experience right now in creation I know, Chris, you and I have had these discussions of all the goofy, crazy things that are going on in the world right now. It's all working towards something in regards to the providence of God. Nothing's going to surprise him. 
in regards to what's taking place because he already knows what it is that's going to take place and what's going to happen. And I'm going to close with one more passage and then I will let you guys go. One that you guys know very well. And once again, this is speaking about just the hope that we are called to have in Christ. So when we just read about how Jesus will literally hand over the kingdom to God after everything's been destroyed, how everything's been put to an end, worthless, null and void, moved off the stage, all these spiritual powers, angelic powers, demonic powers, they're no longer around. Okay? Everyone sees Jesus Christ there. We, as, as the harvest, we as those who have identified with Christ are standing with him, standing with the saints. Jesus has reigned supreme, giving the kingdom back. And you see all these individuals, these beings, these people, us as the church, we are reminded in Philippians 2.10. I'll start off with 9 here. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the sound of Jesus every knee should bow. So it doesn't matter who, what, or where, there will be a day where every knee will bow to the name of Jesus Christ. Believer, non-believer, whatever, they will see that Jesus is king, that Jesus is God. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. So the saints that are in heaven, Jesus Christ is Lord, right? On earth, those who are still alive, Jesus Christ is Lord. And those who are under the earth, those who have passed away, Jesus Christ is Lord. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? There's a lot here. And like I said, with notes for me, it's a different thing, but I just want to make sure that I hit on this stuff with you guys because there is a lot. But I want you guys to grasp this. Like I told my wife, I said, I don't remember... The last time I was so, I love preaching, but if we remind ourselves of this hope and of this truth, the pain in life and the hardships of life don't go away. They won't leave. We're in a fallen world. We know this as Christians, right? But man, when you got hope at the forefront of everything, you might seem like a fool to the world, but my gosh. Life is just that much easier to navigate through because you know where you're going. Remember, like I said, it doesn't matter how rocky the plane gets, it just you know that that plane's going to land. Amen?